I'm in a really manic space. Fairly amazing that it's sort of the same delay, but I'm 5,000 miles away this time. Aww. Don't remind me. I'm furious at you. Welcome to What It Is That Show, where a couple of adults give each other a book report of their choosing, be it a mystery, marvel, or machination, or really anything that we're interested in in that moment in time. I am your host, Ellie Main, and with me, as always, I have Chelsea Hovfish. What's going on, Chelsea? It's been a great week. It's it's Tuesday. So. <laughs> no problem. So, no problem. <laughs> Will you tell everyone why you're furious with me? Oh yeah, I'm furious with you uh, because I think it's just kind of fucked up that you didn't consider the fact that everything is on fire and that like yeah. I might like need you at like any moment and like right right. To paraphrase one of my favorite problematic videos from when I was like uh, in high school, I'm not saying it's your responsibility to like validate and accept all my feelings like every minute on the minute, right? But isn't it? Mm-hmm. No, I'm very happy that you get to, like, spend time with your parents and, like, see your actual real sisters and, like, do white people things on a boat. But, like, <gasps> I am sad that you're, like, not physically here. I have to quarantine for at least for two weeks. Yeah. Uh, like, off of having to write a government form to say where I'm going to be and stuff in case they decide to come over and check and have a go at me. They are going to um, check. <laughs> well, like, I went on a very short walk with my mum the other day and then like a helicopter passed overhead and she was like, oh, they're looking for you. <laughs> <laughs> they know you're funny. out. One of the things I was crying about like 45 seconds ago was just like we've reached like the level of the PSYOP where uh, like our dumb president is like, yeah, it doesn't really affect anybody. And I was like, oh, yeah, nobody except for like just like all those dead people. Yeah. And then all the people that loved those dead people. Right. And then, like, the tertiary people that might not have even known those dead people, but, like, depended on them for something because of the way that, like, we're social creatures and we live in an increasingly, like, interconnected economy. Because of the way society works. Yeah. So, like, other than that, I guess it's not affecting anybody. Just before but... we jumped on this podcast to chat to each other, you reminded me of a video game, I believe from the mid-90s. Mid to late 90s? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely sentient. So, like, <laughs> it had to be, like, like, maybe, like, like a, like a cute, fun 98, maybe, 99. If, if uh, any of our listeners are in the same age bracket as us, you... Is that a phone? It's an actual phone. I haven't heard a phone like that in it's been 84 years. Yeah, so if you're in the age, same age bracket as us, you might remember a video game, video games called Dogs or Cats with a Z. There was also yeah. lesser known oddballs with a Z, and they were little monster creatures. And uh, you could basically just adopt a dog or a cat and breed them. So we got in so much trouble because we figured out <laughs> that if you change the date yes. on your computer, then they would have puppies or kittens earlier. And so then it came about that our antivirus software was out of date and my dad could not figure out why. And he got so mad that he called the software company. Yes. And was like, why is this not working? And we had managed to forward the date by like an entire year because we were so desperate for our puppies and kittens to arrive. Yeah, Cats, I think, was one of the first computer games I was allowed that wasn't like purely instructional. Because I had all yeah. those games which I've recently found online and, and they still whip. 
you're like underwater and you have to do like basic subtraction and addition to like explore the ocean yes those are really good or like read and rabbit still whip and they still whip they're good games okay they figured it out but i had cats and dogs and i did fuck with that was like my first experience with like just sort of video game as like serotonin button where it's mm-hmm. just like you're just like oh, yeah, I, have, I have the black and white cat and i have the calico cat and then i'm gonna get another on the baby in order a little, like the- like a little love perfume it's like, i'm gonna get a love yes. perfume yes in order to get the dogs to mate they have to sit next to like they had to sit by each other but facing the other way catch me eight years old fucking transcendent in that moment (laughs) when it was just like and i was like i create life much like god (laughs) and my dad was like don't you can't say that you can't play this game anymore let us segue into five fun fast facts (gasps) god i could use them i'm ready number one Robert Pattinson dealt with an obsessed fan who had been camping outside his apartment by taking her out on a dinner date and complaining about everything in his life so she never came back. I love it. Number two, the ashes of Stephen Hawking were buried between the graves of Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin in a section of Westminster Abbey known as the Scientist Corner. As a final tribute during the burial, the European Space Agency beamed recordings of Hawking's voice to the nearest black hole. Aw, I bet he loved that. He probably did. Well, he was like an avowed atheist, right? So I bet he doesn't. So. I bet he doesn't think that it happened. But if he was wrong, he's like, "Dude, that was cool." Number three, the first public call made from an iPhone was made by Steve Jobs. He called a Starbucks, ordered four thousand lattes, and then said, "Just kidding," and hung up. I don't love that, but fine. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Go fuck yourself. I'm Steve Just Jobs. My new phone. new phone wait number four four michael jordan once tipped a waitress a five dollar chip for bringing him a drink in a casino wayne gretzky stopped the waitress removed the five dollar chip grabbed one of the many one hundred dollar chips on jordan's side of the table and gave it to her saying this is how we tip in vegas michael yes (laughs) that is good and my final one my favorite one everybody's good guy everybody's real life superhero keanu reeves often forego some of his paychecks so that producers can bring on other notable actors. On The Devil's Advocate, he reduced his salary by a few million so that he could work with Al Pacino. And he did the same thing on The Replacements to be able to work with Gene Hackman. Oh, that's very He just wants to meet people, so he's like, yeah, I'll do it for whatever. I've heard that he does stuff like that too, where he'll either reduce his paycheck or he'll put it in his rider to like keep the same crew to like make sure that the crew gets like jobs and also gets paid like the rate that they need. Good guy, Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Shall we mini game? Yes. Why do you go first? I go first. Yeah. Good, because I really like mine. <laughs> Okay, good. <laughs> Mine is called the Airbud Exception. The Airbud Exception? Yes. You're talking about Airbud as in the basketball playing Labrador? I am talking about Airbud the dog. Um, surely it was more than one dog. I hope not. If I don't want to okay. live in that world, I wanted to have been one dog that was good at all of those sports forever. <laughs> I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in that world. The Airbud Exception. He was exceptional. There's a dog who could play basketball. He still is because he'll never die. So, Is it about a trick that Airbud could never do? Could he never do a three-pointer? I don't know. I'm going to be totally honest with you. Despite my extreme happiness with this title, I've never seen a single Air... Oh, that's not true. I watched Air Buddies. I've never the seen The kid Air that Bud. I babysat once. 
You skip straight to a sequel? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it, it's not even a sequel. It's just like in the like Air Bud Extended Universe. Okay. Where it's just like, a, yeah, it's like a bunch of puppies. But it is canon. It is canon that like those puppies <laughs> can play games. Play <laughs> no, it's so Air Bud Exception, I think it's going to make sense to you, but like it doesn't have anything to do with dogs. I'm, I'm excited for it. My title is The Real Life BFG. Oh, that big fucking giant? Not big fucking, no, you've got two things confused. <laughs> you've got the big fucking gun from Doom confused uh-huh. with the big friendly giant from children's literature. <laughs> I always honestly thought it was the big fucking giant and that's why they had to shorten it. <laughs> like, they couldn't call it that. The giant who saved the orphan. Well, because why, called... otherwise, why wouldn't they just call it the big friendly giant? Why would they have to shorten he it? He calls himself the BFG. He shortens his own name. Yeah, because it's got a swear in it. No, it's not because it's, it's, <laughs> it's long. All right, fine. The real life big fucking giant. I don't want to live in that world. Look, it's big fucking giant. Okay, real life big Is it about Andre the Giant? Yes. <laughs> Tell me about this giant. So yes, as you pointed out, I am talking about Andre the Giant. Few people are more instantly recognizable than the legendary Andre the Giant. Mm-hmm. A living leviathan among men who helped transform professional wrestling with his larger-than-life physicality and commanding demeanor. Like Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson, even those who aren't fans of the sport behind Andre's career know who he was. His legacy transcended wrestling and cemented him as a sort of pop culture fixation. And as a result, much like RBG, Andre has been the subject of everything from street art, t-shirts, and documentaries. But because he's such a sort of legendary icon, even basic facts about him and his life have been kind of muddled thanks to a combination of pre-internet era documentation about him complete lack of verification he doesn't really have any family that have been like this is true or not true so he's sort of been clouded in a lot of like mythos and false stories and i think that always kind of helped to build this mysterious persona of quote-unquote andre the giant and he understood the power of a good story so he was all for that he loved the embellishment and the shock value of the stories that surrounded him Mm -hmm. so it's kind of it's hard to sift the truth and rumor an innuendo to find what is actually true because he himself kind of promoted right he was yeah. into it oh, yeah. in a sweet way not in like a horrible trumpy way <laughs> so but there, there was a publication it was a biography called the eighth wonder of the world that came out and then it was an hbo documentary so they think they've done a pretty good job of sifting through to find out what's real but some of the fake stories are very fun too so it's gonna be a spattering of both from the moment of birth Andre René Rusimov was notable for his size. He weighed over 13 pounds when he was born. Oh. <laughs> Waited for your facial expression there. Born on May 19th, 1946, which is, that's the average weight of a four-month-old. That's how much Mamba weighs. Oh. I would not want a Mamba moving through any part of my body. Right. In that time, women in France usually gave birth at home. But funnily enough, because she was about to fly out, shat out a mamba, she, she went to the hospital <laughs> to perform labor. She was like, this is a problem. <laughs> Something is happening here. She must, her pregnancy belly must have been mahoosive. <gasps> so she had two children before, so this one must have been quite the surprise. I mean, my, you know, my cousins are triplets. I remember seeing that pregnancy belly and being like, this is like some alien shit. No offense to the woman that carried my cousins but I'm even sure they, they were just about three pounds so that was only 10 pounds worth of baby and that 
like or like ten and some change pounds worth of baby, and that was a horrific pregnancy belly. So you cannot imagine. Yeah, we. So despite being larger than normal, he was a pretty normal kid. Spent his childhood helping his parents manage their farm in the pastoral hometown of Molion in France. Mm-hmm. And they never lacked food, but you know it was a pretty humble country life. The children had to walk one and a half miles to and from school unless someone in the village was around to drive them. And one of those people. Funnily enough, was the famous Irish novelist, playwright, and Nobel Prize laureate Samuel Beckett. Oh. Samuel Beckett used to drive Andre the Giant before he was Andre the Giant to school. Oh, random coinky dink. What up with the giantness? So the human body, as you know, has numerous checks and balances to maintain stasis, uh, but unfortunately, they don't always function properly. So when a person's pituitary gland produces too much growth hormone. This is known as acromegaly. There we go. Acromegaly. (laughs) It's incredibly rare, affecting only about 0.0005. I nearly said 0.000, but I know that freaks you out. (laughs) (laughs) 0.0005% of the population gets this. And the most obvious symptom is gigantism. So that results in an excess height and girth, especially in hands and feet, as well as enlarged facial features. And if you've ever seen a picture of Under the Giant, or if you've seen The Princess Bride or any of the other films that he was in, you'll recognize that from his features. No one really knows if he was ever actually sort of officially diagnosed with it, or if he really understood what he had. He was kind of overlooked as a child because he had large relatives, and doctors were like, us, oh, it's normal. Sure isn't. <laughs> It's possible that he learned about his condition as early as 1970, so he would have been like in his 30s, um, while wrestling in Japan with a fellow wrestler who also had gigantism. He might have been like, this is what you have, bro. Or it might have been as late as 1981 in America when he started to get ill, which we'll come back to. Okay. Because acromegaly has more than a 50% success rate via surgery in terms of like curing it. But if it's left untreated it often results, just the complications around it result in the patient passing away, usually before the age of 45. Yeah. But back to his teen years. So age 14, Andre took a step closer to becoming Andre the Giant when he stopped attending school to start working full time. Some people, this is part of the rumors, are like, hey, he dropped out because he was like too big to fit in school. Um, But that's not true. (laughs) He left because French children weren't required to attend school past that age and he was never super academic. So you could leave when you were 14 back in them days. And he spent the next few years lugging 250 pound sacks of grain around the farm and working odd jobs at factories and delivering food and, you know, doing sort of normal old jobs. And then he had this chance encounter with a man who would launch his wrestling career. This man was called Robert Lejean. Uh So many people don't realize that the Greco-Roman style wrestling originated in France in the 19th century under the moniker La Toute Française, otherwise known as the French Struggle. (laughs) nice even the wrestling move known as the bear hug originated in france which because it was originally called the french hug yes out of this long tenured history of french wrestling came a long line of legendary wrestlers and promoters one of whom was robert lejean this bloke robert encountered andre while working in the small village of le fert sous joire sure andre was 18 but already six and a half feet tall and 250 pounds See, what about that is that like, that, I mean, obviously like that is a big person, but mm-hmm. like, especially probably back then, but I feel like by today's standards, like that's bigger than average, but it's not freakishly big. It's like a linebacker, right? Yeah. But like a linebacker in college, probably. 
Right. Men don't stop growing until their early, early 20s, usually like 19 to like 22. But I, I just think it's interesting. I just, you know, people are getting bigger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so much. So Lejean saw a future wrestling star in the young man, as you sure. would if you happened upon such a large teen, and offered to train him at his school in Paris. Ironically, Andre had never been a wrestling fan growing up because his family couldn't afford a TV. So he had no idea what it was. And his parents were illiterate, so they didn't subscribe to newspapers. So he didn't really even know that this was a thing. But the opportunity to transcend his humble roots appealed to him, as you can imagine that it would. And so at 18, he got his driver's license and moved to the big city of Paris, away from his country farmland in France. The year was 1965. And it would be challenging. It would be a challenging one for the old giant. Because he didn't earn any money training. And so sometimes he would be he would sleep at the metro station, didn't have any money. And to make ends meet, he took on other jobs as well. A lot of it was he was bodyguards to prostitutes in the red light district. Aww. The area home to the one and only Moulin Rouge. Nice. So he would look after prostitutes in the in the area where the Moulin Rouge is. Probably be in that probably room. pretty effectively as well. I can imagine so. <laughs> After a year of hard work, he had his first official wrestling match on January 25th, 1966. Obviously, he was fairly naturally gifted due to being massive. So obviously, a whole part of wrestling is the acting, right? Right. You have to be a good athlete, but you also, I mean, I mean you know, acting, I say in quotation marks. It's very like, it's like kind of like pantomime, you know? It's very... Yeah, soap opera acting, right? Yeah, exactly. Melodramatic. So he mostly just sort of appeared super menacing and stood there and was terrifying and everyone was like, this works. <laughs> he wrestled under the name Le Grand Fer, which was an homage to a mythical French lumberjack who killed 85 people using an axe. Ooh. So it's kind of like choosing the name Jason the Axe Murderer. <laughs> if, if you were going to be a wrestler here. What a heel. <laughs> a huge heel. <laughs> just two weeks after the launch of his wrestling career, he had his first televised match during which a lean, milk-drinking Grand Fair wrestled in a very tactical style full of hip tosses and head scissors would make him almost unrecognizable to fans later in North America. He would go on the stage and just drink milk. <laughs> I mean, that's a flex. Maybe it was just to freak people out. So at 19, he visited his parents, went back to, to his village, having already broken into the wrestling business. And according to a 1981 Sports Illustrated profile, he had grown so dramatically in the interim being nearly seven feet tall, that his parents didn't recognize the person who knocked on their door. They had watched someone, they'd watched him wrestle on TV without ever knowing that they were watching their own son. Whoa. Yeah. But say, now, yeah, reaching seven feet, now we're getting into like, all right, like, no, like, that's a big boy. That's a big boy. That's a big old boy. In 1969, he made his debut in the UK, then Africa, then Japan, the Middle East, Montreal, and then that blew his career into the Americas. At a time, he'd reached his full height of seven foot four, and he weighed 390 pounds. Although actually, there's some debate about that. The LA Times claimed he was nearly seven feet, and in photos where he's standing next to the seven foot one basket player, Wilt Chamberlain, he is a little shorter. So that might be part of the mythos surrounding him, that he was kind of like, no one actually knew how tall he was or like it was never recorded accurately. And he was like, fine with that. <laughs> Apparently, for fun, he would get pretty drunk and he would pick up cars and turn them 90 degrees and stack them in alleyways that were just like, so that like the front of the car, like they, they would like be immovable. What? 
Yeah, he would lift people's cars and turn them 90 degrees and put them back down where they were parked so that people couldn't move their cars. They would come back out and their car would be like bumper to bumper in an alleyway as a hilarious prank. So while his wrestling career expanded, so too did his ring names. America didn't have the same context for like the axe murderer or for what he wanted to be called, which translated as giant fairy Uh (laughs) in French. So So that's when he earned the moniker under the giant, though exactly who coined that term remains contested. So 1973, the giant wrestled in New York City for the first time, where he crossed paths with the second most important promoter in his life, Vince McMahon Sr. Someday it would be fun to do a work topic that's just on wrestling because like WWE is fucking insane. It's so weird. After just one week of watching his performances, McMahon signed him. Uh, and on March 24th, 1973, Andre made his Worldwide Wrestling Federation debut in Philadelphia. That relationship with this promoter would then be passed from father to son and develop into a legacy. So Vince McMahon Jr. and Andre the Giant transformed pro wrestling and arguably cable television. But this is where the real life BFG comes in, whichever way you want to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Despite his massive size, Andre did his best to avoid confrontation and maintain harmony around him. This was evident from the very beginning of his career when, per the Eighth Wonder of the World, the biography that was written about him, he respectfully queried a veteran opponent, if I'm clumsy, forgive me and please, please don't hurt me. (laughs) In a wrestling match. And this guy's like seven foot, 300 pounds. The guy's like, oh yeah, buddy, I'll put my kid gloves Uh, on. Okay. That's good. Andre enjoyed the the camaraderie that came with pro wrestling and is remembered for being super friendly, caring, and generous always, despite the kind of gruff, rough rough and tumble sort of industry it was known as being. Apparently it was kind of quite cutthroat behind the scenes and he just never had time for any of that. Those close to him came to know Andre as a sensitive fellow who, tired of the constant inescapable stares and harassment from strangers, he just wanted to be a normal boy. But he was huge. And obviously he couldn't really hide. He couldn't hide anywhere. It's not like he could put on like sunglasses and a coat. Yeah. He was just instantly recognizable. So there's very few places that he could seek privacy. Mm -hmm. So he kind of went with it, right? So he pivoted even further into the limelight when he transcended wrestling, launched his movie career. He had obviously a fairy tale size that made him idyllic for fantasy roles. And when special effects technology was more limited. In a documentary, Andre the Giant, which is on HBO, his entrance into the movie industry was dubbed CGI before there was CGI. (laughs) (laughs) So he was uh, the howling Sasquatch in The Six Million Dollar Man, but became most known for his role as the gentle and friendly Physic the Giant in The Princess Bride in 1987 a role that gave his amiable personality an opportunity to shine alongside his physical prowess. He has some amazing little one-liners in there. It's a really, really fun movie. Um, (laughs) And actually, the guy who wrote The Princess Bride, wrote the book of it, wrote it with him in mind as his character. So when it was coming to being cast, the author told the director, like, this is the, you have to get this guy. And then the director auditioned him and he's like, couldn't understand a word he said, but whatever, (laughs) we gave it to him anyway. And now sort of on a little bit more about what we've touched on earlier with mm. uh, his drinking habits. So he yeah. started his career as a light drinker, obviously, with just milk on stage. <laughs> yeah. But by the time he reached his peak, his drinking capacity was particularly noteworthy. So there are some pretty incredible stories. There was a 14-hour flight from Chicago to Tokyo when Andre drank the commercial flight dry of vodka. 
Hell yeah, my king! He racked up a forty thousand dollar bar tab while working on set of The Princess Bride. Ooh. Hulk Hogan claimed he saw Andre consume a case of wine in three hours. I mean, you know, <laughs> do what you do. The giant allegedly consumed over a hundred beers in a single sitting. I have heard that's one that I've heard before. Yeah. But most of his colleagues report that alcohol had little to no effect on him, with no hangovers or slurred speech affecting his wrestling duties. Though there was one pretty famous exception. Uh According to Carrie Elwes, his co-star in The Princess Bride, Andre once drank enough to pass out in a hotel lobby, and since it was impossible to move him, the hotel employees just arranged a velvet rope around him. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Can you imagine walking into your hotel and just seeing the biggest man you've ever seen (laughs) out cold on the ground, surrounded by a hotel velvet rope? Uh, They didn't want to disturb him. (laughs) I think I would have thought I would, like, walk through, like, some sort of portal. Like, I would go, like, investigate the door and be like, am I in... Am I in, like, a new dimension? Did I just slide, like, in the people in sliders? Am I a slider now? Am I drunk? (laughs) (laughs) Am I drunk? Um, but sadly, yeah. these these tales of of extreme extreme drinking were perhaps more driven by his deteriorating condition more than his desire to party. So at his heaviest, Andre billed at a pretty whopping five hundred and fifty pounds. Holy guacamole! Yeah. So acromegaly caused Andre continuous and ever worsening pain, especially in all his joints, so his knees, back and neck. That's a lot of weight to hold up, even on big old legs. He just couldn't handle the weight of the mass and his fatigue and other symptoms got worse and worse along with the pain. So there's a quite famous scene in The Princess Bride where Robin Wright, off of Jenny in Forrest Gump, and then obviously she plays What's Her Shops in House of Cards. Claire. Yeah. Claire, thank you so much. She plays Claire in House of Cards. So there's a scene where she jumps out of a window and he catches her. And he had to do that with cables because it was too painful for him to even raise his arms to catch her like that. Yeah. In 1981, he broke his ankle and kind of the writing was on the wall then. He knew that his wrestling days were numbered and he didn't really know how much longer he had left. And he shared that information with Vince McMahon Jr. because obviously they had a relationship over the years of working together. And taking his confidence very sincerely, McMahon offered Andre an opportunity for the perfect culmination to his legendary career. So, little side note, while Andre was busy developing his career, the industry was also undergoing major evolution. This was thanks in part to Vince McMahon Jr., a legend in his own right, not in just pro wrestling, but in cable television and business in general, really changed the nature of television when he uh, when he got into it. So he was the first wrestling owner to see beyond local territories and envision a world united under one brand. After an aggressive and controversial takeover of surrounding territories, McMahon yeah. succeeded in launching WWF. So he changed WWF to what we now know as the World Wrestling Federation. Mm-hmm. Not only was he the first to unite American territories, he also revolutionized the concept of pay-per-view television through featured buy-ins like WrestleMania. At just a few years of operation, McMahon was determined to solidify the WWF's staying power, so he conceived of a main event for the upcoming WrestleMania 3 that would do that very thing. Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant, which at the time was like the two biggest names in wrestling mm-hmm. fighting off. So if you're into wrestling, that is something that you were going to pay to watch. Prior to that point, Andre had always played a good guy or quote unquote babyface in wrestling vernacular and was longtime friends with Hogan. 
it would be the first time in Andre's WWF career that he was scripted to lose a match, as well as play a bad guy or a heel. So he was a heel when he was in France as the axe murderer, then he was a good guy because he was a sweet giant, but this was the first time he was playing a heel. Gonna turn heel. Yeah. So Hogan successfully defended his belt and in a single stroke, Andre helped cement Hulk's legacy even further. And he solidified the WWF as the future of wrestling entertainment. And he managed to gracefully kind of back out of his career before people really knew that he it was because he was so ill. Throughout the course of his career, Andre's public image was protected and he rarely discussed his health candidly at all. So his visible deterioration was sh pretty shocking. In fact, to make WrestleMania feasible, he had to have back surgery and he was wearing a secret back brace during that fight with Hulk Hogan. Post-WrestleMania, Andre's condition worsened rapidly, and after attempting to continue his career as a guest commentator, he officially retired in 92. He returned to his roots, living a quiet life on a ranch in a village in Richmond County, North Carolina, until he passed away on January 27th, 1993. And uh, that's the story of Andre the Giant. I was, very, I was very intrigued after I watched The Princess Bride. I didn't really know anything about him. I never was never a wrestling fan, but I obviously knew the term. You know, I knew, who, I knew Andre the Giant was a person right yeah that is a sweet story i mean yeah. it's sad that he died so young and he probably didn't know that he could have had surgery to prevent all of it because you don't we don't know when he knew that he had uh, acromegaly yeah i mean you know medicine was very different in france in the 40s than uh, it is now <laughs> yeah so my really my only knowledge of andre with the giant was that there was this movie that i saw when i was a kid do you remember movies this is like a bit of a sidebar where i'll try not to go really far off is like <laughs> movies could just kind of be about like big big wide box office opening movies could just kind of be about nothing like it would just be like a movie like the one that we always joke about is like that fucking gone fishing movie where he's like oh yeah like borderline 11 uh if you've never seen the trailer for gone fishing do yourself a favor and go two best it. friends just wanted to go fishing that's it that's like and that's all the movie's about like it's like nowadays you're like Hey, I want to make a movie about two best friends going fishing. And they're like, okay, well, like, what IP is it attached to? And like, what, like, what, what fun subversive flip do you have on this? But so back when movies could just kind of be about like just people doing stuff, there was this movie called My Giant that was like Billy Crystal is a talent agent and he learns that there's like a really tall guy in Romania and he goes and like finds him and brings him to America and makes him like a superstar. And it, apparently was inspired by the fact that Billy Crystal and Andre the Giant were like friends that they met on the set of the Princess Bride and were like best friends. Yes. Uh, but it's also it's and I mean I haven't seen this movie since I saw it in the theaters as a child so I could be not remembering it great but it does definitely fall into that also another category of like sort of defunct thankfully movies where it's like the movie is all about Billy Crystal and so it's just about how he like meets a really tall man and it changes his life and then he dies because he's so tall. And then Billy Crystal's oh. like, I learned so much. <laughs> you know what? That and is it's like late 90s, early 2000s trend in movies. Like, what if we made movies about people that are like a differently able to die? Like Jack. That's what I'm saying. It's like, that's exactly. Thank you for like putting it into a sentence. That is that subgenre of film that I'm so glad has gone away. Because the movie never seems to actually be about the differently abled person. It's about right. their friend that learned so much. Yeah, it's just like, it's like, here's a movie about Billy Crystal and he met a weird dude and that dude was different from him and he learned so much. And then when that dude had nothing left to teach Billy Crystal, he died. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, sorry to tell you about my story about a differently abled man who died. Did you learn so much? I learned, gosh, you know what? 
I'm going to give you one point for everything that I learned from this man's experience. And now I, as a woman who is five foot three, sometimes in the morning, uh, <laughs> I just feel like I'm going to take all of these lessons. And then it really, in many ways, this like very famous man's like complicated life full of his own experiences was actually really about me and for me. And I do think it's important to yeah. like treat all other experiences by other people and just boil them down to like how they serve you. I think that's probably mm -hmm. the best thing to mm -hmm. do, right? So for mm -hmm. that, I am going to give you 10 points and then I'll give you another eight points for each foot that he was. He wasn't eight feet. <laughs> I thought you said he was eight feet. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, I'm well, I take it back. He get no nope. points. I'm keeping them. The airbud exception. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't mind. Okay. It's well, so it's going to be fun because it's going to be, I think more, it's going to be one of our ones that's like a little bit more conversational. Okay. And it kind of, you know, zigs and zags a little bit because in the middle of doing this topic or doing the research for this topic, I realized that I needed to check my privilege. Oh. So it does kind of move around, but we're going to get into it. You need to check your personal biases. Yeah, that's maybe a better way to say it. Like I was coming at it from like a more rigid lens. Okay. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, what the fuck? Love a fluid lens. Yeah, got it. Got to open this lens up a little bit. Um, Sar, Airbud exception. The reason mm -hmm. I named it this, do you remember that meme that was like the Airbud meme where it was like, look, I'm sorry, there's just nothing in the rules that says a dog can't play football. <laughs> and like they, people would like take that and kind of like snowball it out and just be like, look, there's nothing in the rules that says a dog can't, you know. I am distraught that I missed this meme. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Because that's what they always say in those fucking movies. They're like, look, I'm sorry, there's just nothing in the rules that says that like- A dog can't play basketball. Yeah, that joke is great. It is also true. And I'm sure that mm -hmm. is how- Whoever wrote the first Airbud movie, that patriot, came up with this pitch is that they were like, well, you know, there is nothing in the rules that says the dog can't play football. You know what? I had that guy, because it probably was a guy, let's be honest, never smoked weed, ever. No, I don't think he, I don't think he did even once. You know who else can play football, according to the rules? Women. Yes. So this is something, <laughs> women, women and dogs, basically the same. <laughs> according to America. <laughs> This is something, this is something that has fascinated me for a long time, because I think, especially if we're, this is a fun segue from what we were just talking about with the movies. I, I feel like I grew up in the nineties in a, there was a subgenre of story that was often peddled to me because this was like proto girl boss, girl power shit, or I guess girl power. It was girl power. This was pre like lean in girl boss time so okay. like we're coming out of the 80s oh now all the women are women can do anything and like we mean it this time sure it's so real all these stories the way that i remember this narrative being presented to me was mm. to tell me stories of women doing things that traditionally only men did so it was okay. all these stories about like check out this woman soldier check out this girl <laughs> that got to be the bat boy at, uh -huh. for the mlb check out this woman that works on a ranch like yeah it was like a lot of stories girl. that has sort of an, an invisible question mark at the end right so it's just presented as this is inherently interesting because like a woman is doing it right 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 and i think because of that i had an interest i've always been sort of fascinated with the idea of women 
who play men's sports because that was for some reason well I think there's a few reasons one I'm just not athletic so in general I'm like a little I'm like not athletic but I'm like a little athletic but like yeah. I'm not athletic. I'm not a sports person I maybe that's a better way to put it you're not a team sport gal not a team sport girl. I've always been fascinated by this for that reason. I think also because even in quote unquote progressive spaces or, or spaces that were supposed to be progressive in the 90s, this was still like a line in the sand that everybody sort of accepted where they were like, oh yeah, but I mean like, no, like women can't play football because like they're women. Like that's just like not right. Like that's not even a sexism thing. It's just that like women are not built to do that and they're not physically strong the way that men are and it would be too dangerous to which I'm like well football just seems maybe too dangerous for like children I'm not going to argue against a a sort of a generalization of just generally cisgendered men are become physically larger become taller and way more and therefore have more muscle mass than cisgendered women like that is like a mass generalization that you can make however I think all of us have anecdotal evidence of there being fluctuations like there's just so much diversity in like the human phenotype that that there's no reason I mean I think we we have several male friends that you could beat the shit out of (laughs) (laughs) or Uh run or run faster than or like maybe lift more than Mm-hmm. So because there's such like a wide diversity of expression in uh, human achievement, I think we've now kind of moved past the idea that there is not a single woman on the planet that could play football, especially right. because not every role in a football team requires you to be huge, right? Mm-hmm. Not everyone requires you to be like six foot five and 300 pounds. Yeah. Even though there are also, again, some women who are six foot five and 300 pounds that could probably do it. So I decided to kind of look into this and see, have there ever really been any women who played in the NFL or the NBA or the NHL or the MLB? Oh, the last reason, and this is like a shameless plug, there was this TV show in like 2017 called Pitch that was a fictionalized story of the first like female pitcher in the major leagues. Uh-huh. And it was so good. And it starred this very good actress and also Zach Morris. And he was like playing like sort of like daddy veteran pitcher. And he was really sexy and it was a lot. And that show was so good. And uh, it got canceled after one season. And I think that was really uh, the wrong choice. And the, that mistake. was the wrong choice. When you, say, when you say women playing men's sports, do you mean women playing in men's teams as opposed yeah. to like the WNBA? You mean women playing in the NBA? Right. So that's, that's okay. the weird part. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Because the thing is like WNBA being one exception, um, mostly in these major league sports, they don't make that distinction, right? Like it is, it's not called the men's football league. It's called right. the national football league. It's not yeah. called, you know, men's baseball. It's called major league baseball. So yeah. again, much like Airbud, there's nothing in the rules that says you have to be a man to play the sport. It's just yeah. that women haven't played it. So I wanted to find out why, because I was like, surely there are women who have, who have tried, right? And it turns yeah. out there's actually a lot less than I thought there were. This requires like breaking down a little bit, kind of how, I guess, the ranking system of football works in America, which mm-hmm. if you're not interested in this, I'm sorry. I'm like, maybe this is, the, this is the only way in which I'm interested in it. This is how I learned <laughs> things. There's like high school football and there's, so there's junior varsity and varsity football and high school football. Then you go to college football and just like being on the team in a college football is 
is an achievement in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, and they kind of divide it into divisions based on like how big or how prestigious the school and the uh, the team is. And then mm-hmm. you go into the equivalent of like minor leagues. So it'd be like indoor football or arena football or XFL. So these like sort of minor league setups. And then finally you have the NFL, which is like the zenith of all of this. Right. So there's definitely been quite a few women who have played varsity high school football. So cool. playing on a team with men playing multiple positions. There have been a couple women who played in college, 17 women who have played on college football teams that were predominantly male. Because again, it's not a male team. Right. Um, some of these have been like relatively recent. There was a girl, for example, named April Goss, who played for Kent State from 2012 to 2015. Hell yeah. Yeah, mostly they play in a position called place kicker, which is mm-hmm. like the person that goes and like kicks the ball. They're the smaller players, right? It's not a contact position, I think is the big difference here. Whereas right. like if you're playing a contact position, you're out on the field when everybody's running around and throwing the ball around, there's a chance that you could get tackled. A place mm-hmm. kicker only comes in in certain instances in the game and kicks the ball. So right. there's no there's no situation in which you as a place kicker are going to get tackled by somebody. Mm-hmm. And which I think is a, a, a big distinction there. There have been about six women who have played semi-professional. So that would be playing um on an indoor football league that's okay there are women's indoor football leagues and women's arena leagues or there have been but i think most of them have kind of like fallen to the wayside but these right. are women who played on actual indoor or arena teams with men so again it's like entirely possible some of them have played like running positions so they are actually playing contact positions mm-hmm. but here's the thing there's only been one recorded instance of a woman even approaching being able to be in the nfl because those six women who played indoor arena football were never even like approached by the NFL. Mostly the pipeline to the NFL anyway is college. Like the absolute best college players get drafted into the NFL. Right. So every once in a while, somebody from like an indoor or an arena will be invited to what's called a combine, which is like a big scouting. It's like Hunger Games, but for football. So they just have like a big scouting thing. They invite all these people to come and just show like how they can run and throw and catch and tackle. And then they all write, all the scouts write shit down and then they might draft. Okay. So in 2013, a woman named Lauren Silverman decided to try out in the NFL regional scouting combine. And it was a fucking disaster. It seems as though she was not taking it seriously. She uh, wasn't taking it seriously? She was not taking it seriously. It reminds me of one of my all-time favorite jokes on Veep. This is going to be a spoiler for Veep. If you've never seen Veep, you should not listen to this part because it's one of the best shows ever made. And it's so funny. There's a part where the main character, Selena Myers, who's the Veep and then later the president, where she yep. gets screamed at by her like number one aide, where it's like one of those like cathartic, like I'm quitting my horrible job scenes. And she's mm-hmm. screaming at her. And she says, the worst part about working for you is that I know there will never be another female president in my lifetime because we tried it and she sucked. And that is is how a lot of people feel about Lauren Silverman. She's the first woman to ever get invited to a combine. It turns out she also was self-identified entrepreneur who had a product. Oh no. This was like, yeah, she had a product that she wanted to promote for athletes. So she was using it almost more like the way that people go on like American Idol and suck to be funny. She did miserably terribly. She couldn't kick the ball. She hurt herself trying to kick the ball. 
her kickoff traveled 13 yards, which is nothing. Nothing. And then she just stopped. And she didn't do anything else. Uh, <sighs> so it was just like a publicity stunt. It was basically a publicity stunt. It really sucked. And obviously, like, I'm sure that the, the men who were there who had invited her, they wouldn't have invited her if they didn't want her to succeed. So not including them, but like, there were obviously, of course, men who wanted her to fail. And she just sort of gave them exactly the answer yeah. that they wanted. Just like, we'll see, this is why we can't have women come do this. That really sucked. Uh, on a lighter note, not in football, but out of all my research, this is the only one that I could find that was an actual airbud situation. And it is a woman named Menon Weum. She is a Canadian goaltender and she okay. plays in the NHL or she did play in the NHL. So this Lad. is a woman that got to play in a major league sport that was predominantly men, not in like a little fake role. Not in just like the pre thing, not as a publicity stunt, actually played in the NFL with the Tampa Bay Lightning in 1992 and 1993. That's rad. Yeah, so whips. Lauren Silverman really ruined it for everyone, huh? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping not forever. Yeah. Because in Can some ways, like being a woman or being a girl, playing uh, football for your high school and hoping to go to college and hoping to have a chance to try out for the NFL and then being put in that situation where it's like, yeah, we tried it and it sucked. <laughs> and so yeah. now your, your fight is even harder. Exactly. Well, that's a, actually, that's a good point. This is what I was kind of thinking about was there is no rule, much like Airbud, that says that women can't go play in the NFL. However, there are so many structural obstacles. Mm, like yeah. the thing is, is that football, for better or for worse, no matter how you feel about it, this is for some boys in this country, this is their track, right? Like this is yeah. what they practice and, and try to do from young childhood in order mm -hmm. to open up opportunities for themselves. Even mm -hmm. if they never make it to the NFL, it's so that they can get a college scholarship. Like a lot of them, yeah. this is the only way that they could go to college is to be able to play college football. It's just not available to women in the same way. They're not yeah. put into like peewee football when they're young. When they get to high school, there's not equipment for their bodies. There's not, yeah. they can't get the right kind of uniforms. There's not a place for them to change. There's, they're not even asked if they want to try out. It's right. all these sort of very small and subtle and not malicious. Like these are all things like just nobody's thinking about, but it's like, yeah. When you go to like recruit and see, oh, who would want to come play on my football team? They're just not looking at the girls. So then the girls don't think that that could be them. But that sucks because there is a lot of money and there is a lot of opportunity in these types of sports. And they're not, they're only going to essentially like half of society. Right. So to your point, and I think because of the way that we're all kind of moving and changing, there are actually more girls now playing junior varsity and varsity football than there ever have been before. Good. In 2019, this one is another nice story. There was a young woman named Antoinette Harris. She's a cancer survivor and a high school senior. And she plays safety on her men's football team in high school. And she became the first female football player to receive a full scholarship to play college football. Yes, girl. So she is getting that college money to play football. And again, not well, not in like a big figure. They don't get paid. <laughs> I, well, she's getting that college. I'm sorry. She's getting that college money as in money for college, not college money yeah. as in getting paid. Because that's a whole other thing. It's a whole other topic. Yeah. Anyway, so this is where the story takes a hard right turn, which is that I was doing all this research and I was coming at it from this place of why aren't girls, why aren't women encouraged to do these things? And I started to think about, oh yeah, I'm coming at this from very much a cisgendered woman's perspective 
of this mm-hmm. is this binary was presented to me as a child when we weren't having a lot of discussions about gender identity. And now that we are, it's worth taking a look at it again as a society, becoming more accepting of people with different gender identities or talking about how a lot of times like gender identity can be really arbitrary. It's based on sort of like a presupposed set of ideals or expectations put on people based on their perceived gender. Yeah. So as we're working to kind of break those things down and say, okay, well, people are people. And like you said, there's just all different ways that that can be expressed as a human being. Are we eventually going to get to the point where having men's and women's sports is completely outdated? Some right. people say, yes, we're moving that way. Some people, including even some women who are otherwise kind of identify as progressive, say no. And one really interesting example that has been in the news for the last couple of years is the case of Castor Semenya. Do you know who that is? No. Castor Semenya is a South African distance runner and a gold medalist. She is a woman. Uh, she identifies as a woman. Right. She is beyond fast and beyond skilled. Like I said, gold Olympic medalist, one of the only things you know, multiple like world champion. Mm -hmm. So when she started to win and win by a lot, all of a sudden the uh, IAAF governing body Mm -hmm. of her sport decided that they needed to do sex verification tests on her to make sure that she was really a girl. Are you (gasps) really a woman? Because you're so fast. Yeah, it was fucked. So she did these tests and what they found was that she is bio. And again, like all these things are, it's weird to even talk about it. It's We now see these things as so arbitrary. So it's, it feels even kind of weird for me to like talk about this, but this woman, I don't know. They didn't like publish the official results, but they did say that she quote unquote, like passed the verification that she is biologically a woman. <laughs> but they said that there were like some discrepancies. So then of course the press went insane. This was all in like 2009. Press okay. all went insane and were like, oh, she's intersex. She's a hermaphrodite. She's, you know, all these different things. And that is why, and that's like an unfair advantage and she shouldn't be allowed to, to race with women. But it doesn't matter because the IAF said she passed all, all the things that we looked for. So she's going, well, then she keeps running. She keeps winning. She's in the 2012 Olympics. She's in the 2016 Olympics. She set a national record for the 800 meters. In 2018, the IAAF decides that they're going to set these new rules that are called like the differences of sex development rules. And basically they say, so they used to just say, you have to be biologically female to race in women's competitions biologically male to race in men's competitions and that was it now they say if you have a disorder of sex development that allows you to have more than a certain level of testosterone in your blood basically if you have high testosterone levels no matter if you're biologically male or female you are disqualified from racing and the amount that they acquired was so small that most press agreed that it seemed specifically to target Castor Semenya because she does have and this came out later in this whole thing because she ended up suing them she has a biological condition that means that she has higher testosterone than the average woman (laughs) that's it but they say that her testosterone makes her like so strong that she shouldn't get to race with women. That she's like somehow cheating? That she's naturally doping with testosterone. <sighs> uh, so she fought them. She won. 
she did say that, that it was an incredibly difficult experience for her. I don't want to like minimize this into like, you go, oh. Shiro, you fought them. She said that it, the quote was that it destroyed her mentally and physically. So just, mm. I mean, imagine just like people litigating your body and your right to do a sport based on, again, like these incredibly arbitrary. And something that you cannot, cannot control. Yes, yeah, something that you cannot control. But again, also, it's just the reason that they say that this is important is they're like, if you look at the times, like the 800 meter times for men in the Olympics, and you look at the 800 meter times for women in the Olympics, the times for men are considerably faster. So right. what they're arguing is the part that they most people won't say out loud is they're like, if she were racing with men, she would have never won the gold medal. So, which is not as she hasn't been training to race with men. She's been trained to race with women because she identifies as a woman. Right. And she also, there's nothing to say that the increased testosterone in her blood means that she has the physical capability of racing with men and it being a fair race. Right. Also, like, it's not like, what is... What is the end goal? Like it's, right. What is the end goal? Are they going to create an intersex or, or differently gendered category in the Olympics? Right. No. Are they going to allow her to race with the men? No, because that makes no sense. She is. Are they going to go maybe, back in history and test people who have won by a large margin in the past and see if their are race they is dig legitimate? Up their bones? No. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, it just human beings are not a binary, right? We are a spectrum. So like, she's a great example of that. She is a indisputable female person who right. I, who is both born female and identifies as female and happens to produce more testosterone than the average woman. That doesn't automatically just put her in a new category. She's still a woman because the expression of genes and of hormones in a human being can really run the gamut. So that's why it makes no sense to put this weird hard line in the sand and be like, well, men can come over here and do this and women can come over here and do this. So I guess the point is all of this breaks down, even just like this like weird storyline of like, well, why can't women play football? It all breaks down in the face of just like how bizarrely out antiquated the idea of gender is in the first place. Yeah. Um, and I, I realized like, yeah, it was like halfway through, I was like, why am I even... Why do I even care? Well, I mean, I know why I care because gender is a social construct, but so is race and both things affect people's lives all the time. Uh, just because right. something is a social construct doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It means that it matters a whole lot because we're social creatures. Um, yeah. so, like, I know why I care, but I'm like, why am I even approaching this this way? And then I realized, I was like, oh, it's because I don't have to think about these things because I, I was born a woman and I identify as a woman and that inherently allows me to kind of go through life a little bit easier than some other people. So it's just yeah. always good to try to kind of remember that. Agreed. So that is my topic. Chelsea. Yes. Five points just for women. Thanks. <laughs> four on behalf points. of women, thank you. On behalf of women, five points. Uh, four points because Casta won her case and fuck the IAF for even doing that test. That's so out of order. Minus three points because... Lauren did really ruin it for every girl growing up hoping to play in the NFL. But plus one point back because of the title, I thought was fantastic. Oh, and thank you. Just like the mention of Airbud warms my soul. Real quick, I just, I realized like I kind of misspoke because uh, I was like Go in the on. heat of the moment. Cassius Semenya didn't win her case in the sense that like the I, IAAF did not ha like have to reverse that rule. So that rule is still in effect. And in that way, she you know it's it's an ongoing issue um oh. and they're continuing to fight it but the way that she did win is that 
or the way that I like to think of her winning, and of course, uh, COVID as it has in so many ways, despite what our president says, affected almost everything, uh, is that this was supposed to happen in 2020, but the 2020 Olympics have been postponed. But basically she was just like, oh, we'll go fuck you guys. I'm just gonna do a different, like a different type of, uh, a different event. So she was doing like the 400 and 800, and and then that's part of the reason that it seemed like the rule was very specifically meant to target hers. They were like, well, for no particular reason at all, in the 400 and 800 meter run, if you have this amount of testosterone that's just this much more, then you can't do it anymore. And they thought they were like, oh, got her ass. And she was like, oh, go fuck yourself. I'm just going to do the 200 meter run then. Good. Good. Well, so four points for that. In that way, she won. Four points for her gumption. Yeah. I'm, I'm so impressed with this doing this episode from 5,000 miles away. I it's know. 3 p.m. where Chelsea, well, 4 p.m. now. 4.45 and it's uh, nearly 11 p.m here and the barn is quiet which means that i should probably go so mm-hmm. chelsea where can people find you people can find me at chelsea harfouche wherever internets are sold and you can find me at ellie main on instagram or ellie maney on twitter that's m-a-i-n-e-y and you can find this podcast at what pod on twitter and instagram redbubble patreon and you can find our website at those two girls.club Thank you so much for joining us. And I promise I'll do social media this week because I have a little more time. (laughs) Uh What else are you going to do? Allegedly. (laughs) um, (laughs) Join us next week because we we commit to never missing a week even when we are across the ocean from each other. It is true. It's true. And um, until next time, I don't know, maybe (laughs) you'll learn something. That's right. Please go into your parents' bedroom, don't know, and just tell them to uh, keep it loose, keep it tight, say the present night. Later. Love you.